0: Today's New Testament reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked, these, in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, "They are they; are These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hungry. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor this any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center before the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
1: Thank you, Lauren. Wow. I'm overwhelmed. You should hear it from the front of the church. And I would like to ask that the next section be even more overwhelming, and we're going to accomplish that by the following. Please take your cell phones out and turn off those messages noises that you get when you get an email or you get a text. It's a wonderful accompaniment to cacophony, but not a great accompaniment to the chorale. And secondly, uh, take advantage of the opportunity to take a picture as they gather up front. I'm sure, Brenda, we can ask you to pause for just a moment so photographers can take a picture of the group. But please refrain from taking pictures during the performance. This is a sacred concert and a sacred worship time, and we want to preserve that. Uh, as we as we share this glorious moment together. Well, I am grateful that all of you are here. I hope the winds didn't take too bad a toll on your homes and lives. I um, was very cautious and moved my car up next to the house and by the garage to make sure that any stray limbs from one of the trees on the streets didn't catch my car. And then my grape arbor, made out of 4x4 four four, uh, wood, collapsed on my car. <laughs> Shattered the window, broke the mirror, you know, the whole, whole thing. So anyway, uh, just a quick commercial for Primo Autoglass. Thank you very much, Edgar. Um, for those of you who are guests today, Edgar's a, a member of our congregation who helped me out there our reading today captures something that happens at the end of the story. We have a group of people. A group of people who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A remnant. A group of people who have survived the great tribulation. A group of people that The elder knows full well who they are when he asks the question, who are these? But it's a great multitude gathered, the fruits of the salvation God has brought. And in this moment of the gathering of the great multitude, there's praise, glorious praise. I find similar language, I believe, in Revelation 5 and elsewhere. And in this passage of praise, things are referenced. The Lamb is at the center of them. Even Revelation in this moment of triumph puts the Lamb at the center of the action. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this Lamb becomes the shepherd and is the shepherd. It's sort of reminiscent of uh, John's language in John chapter 1. There's a beginning in which there's a word, and the word is with God and is God and was with God in the beginning. Kind of a full circle thing. So here we have a lamb who is the shepherd, who will lead the sheep. And if we try to track that, we, we come up with the one who has come and dwelt among us who gives himself generously to us in a thousand ways, million ways, who lays down his life as the sacrificial lamb of God once for all, that no more might we have to endure that particular ritual, that no longer are we under the curse of sin, that we have life and hope and this lamb at the center of the multitude is the shepherd who has now gathered the sheep and out of their trial and out of their trauma he puts a tent over them I've had the privilege of taking groups to Israel to the Middle East I've been there in summer it took two years to grow the hair back on my legs 122 degrees, I thought I was going to die. Put a tent over somebody in that kind of climate is a serious statement of protection, of encompassing them and bringing them in, of enfolding them. And this shepherd will, Psalm 23 is referred to here, lead them beside still waters. For the river of life, as you know, is in that place. And lead them to green pastures. The tree of life is in that place. And we'll wipe every tear from their eye. There's no more need to anoint the sores to keep the flies off. No more need to rescue the sheep who's trapped on the precipice. No more need to slay the lion or the wolf or the bear who would come after the flock. God is with them day and night. It's their sun and moon, their presence. It's an end of time reading. It's where the remnant are headed. It's where we end up. But there's a story that goes before that. The a story that goes before that. I'd like to share that story with you in the form of something tremendously familiar, but see if you've heard it this way before. A young prince and his friends are taken by the Babylonians from Judah. He's renamed taught Babylonian. Schooled along with his friends in the arts of the Babylonians and the sciences and so forth of the Babylonians. Given the best possible education in the court of the king because the king is a liberal in the sense that he wants to encompass the knowledge of other peoples. Other monarchs before him were in the habit of trampling out or killing everybody that was remotely, possibly could remotely uh, attack or retaliate against them. Nebuchadnezzar was a different kind of king. He went in and he selected the best of the best and he tried to incorporate them, to add them to his court and council. He wasn't the type who liked to go in and slaughter everybody. And he brought these four... And what we have focused on in our children's stories and historically is their statements of individuality as Hebrews. They weren't going to eat the unclean meats or the foods offered to idols. As Adventists, we like to spin this into a vegetarian diet. Well, that's just fine. A vegetarian diet is certainly healthier, although I'm here to tell you I don't believe Daniel and his friends were vegetarian for a second they did eat simple foods at the request that they made, and they did excel, and they did continue to worship the God of their fathers. While the years went by, and King Nebuchadnezzar, while a sensible person in many ways, became less sensible and very full of himself and persuaded that he should erect a great image Of course, there were dreams in the meantime, and in the dream that he had had, the head of gold, the body of silver, etc., was crushed by a rock, which grew and filled the whole earth. Somehow in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar recognized something beyond his control and beyond his power. Somehow in this dream, he had an encounter with the divine, but he fought it. And on the plain of Dura, he erected a mammoth behemoth statue of himself in gold. This time, it wasn't just a head of gold with silver body and so forth. It was all gold. He was the king whose kingdom would never end. And that's the blasphemy of blasphemies, isn't it? Because there is only one kingdom that never ends. And it's the kingdom of our God and of his Lord Jesus Christ. He calls the whole world, as it were, that is to say, all of his tributaries and all of his conquered kingdoms and all of his representatives and all of his friends and ambassadors and counselors and so forth, priests, etc., to assemble. We don't know where Daniel is this particular day, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there, or at least that is their Babylonian names. Instructions are given, you know the story. At the trumpet sound, there to bow, only they don't. They remain standing. We focus at this point in the story on the fact that they were willing to die out of loyalty for their God. And I think that's a worthy focus. I don't know how many of us, if given the option to say, well, what does it matter? I mean, my heart's not in it. You know, why should I go to the furnace because I just refuse to, you know, uh, why? The temptation's there for us not to stand on principle more often than not. For whatever reasons, they chose to stand. They were not willing to settle in their minds for a gesture that was empty. They didn't believe in that. They believed there was only one way to honor their God, and it would be to stand and to die if necessary. Well, you know this story, but where does the surprise come in? It's in a familiar part as well, because as they're thrown into this furnace heated now seven times hotter than usual, it isn't three people that Nebuchadnezzar sees, there's a fourth I don't know if at the time he remembered the dream he had had interpreted by Daniel of the statue and the stone coming down to crush it. But it must have thrown him off just a bit, don't you think? The symmetry, the dream happening in which this rock without hands, carved without hands, comes down and crushes his statue and fills the whole world. And now instead of three in the fire, there are four must have rocked his world just a bit. And if we read the text correctly, it says, and the fourth is like the son of the gods. He doesn't know who he's talking about, but he recognizes the divine when he sees it. He knows in whose presence he stands. And he orders them to step out of the fire, for they are unscathed. Now, I don't know about you, but just a few seconds under a candle and I'm burnt. I don't know about you, but a few minutes in the sun and I am burnt. I don't know about you, but a good hot water can scald pretty quickly. And this was a smelting fire designed to melt metals to the tune of at least 1,400 degrees or hotter. And they are unscathed. Well, we focus on the miracle of that a lot too, but what I want to focus on today is the recognition that Nebuchadnezzar makes and the tribute that he offers in this moment. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3, verse, I think, 28. 26 ends, So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads even singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. And listen to 28, because this is really, really something. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, At the party on the plain of Dura, before tens of thousands of people and the most important people on the face of the earth, before a gargantuan statue of gold that he had erected in his own honor, after declaring that anybody who defied him would surely die, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, proud, haughty, arrogant, and now completely out of touch, gets this wake-up call. For the fourth is like the son of the gods. And he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Perhaps that is a working or workable or worthwhile definition of remnant. Those who do not defile themselves with the worship of any God but their own. We've defined that, haven't we, in other terms historically. Keep the faith of Jesus and the commandments, including the fourth commandment, So, and have the spirit of prophecy, so Sabbath plus law-keeping plus LNG White equals remnant. That's kind of the old formula I grew up with. But perhaps the remnant that we ought to look at is the remnant that does not compromise in terms of the focus of who they worship. Because in not compromising on that, even the heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar, speaks words of praise publicly to the living God. A convert was made that day. And I hope that when John in Revelation sees the great multitude who've been redeemed, this remnant, Nebuchadnezzar was one of them standing in that vision. Can't wait to talk to the man. We just passed Cyber Monday and all of the hype. How many of you went online and got that special deal on ink or computers or who knows what? Worse yet, we just passed Black Friday, and I don't stand in condemnation of anybody who likes to shop or who shopped on Black Friday or who. But let's look at the world around us for a minute. People camped at stores for three days in some cases to save a couple of hundred dollars. You cannot serve God and mammon. People showed up at Walmart in the afternoon, filled their baskets with what were coming to be the super specials that would go on at midnight. People who came in the doors at midnight found the shelves empty with the special things. People were getting in fistfights. There were almost riots in some of these stores. That's over getting an Xbox at a reduced price. We had a murder in Santa Clarita this year over an eBay sale or a Craigslist sale of was it an Xbox? Fierker? And oh, yeah, I mean this insanity. Insanity. 51 billion dollars in sales Black Friday. In an economy that is supposed to be dead. 51 billion When we say thou shalt have no other God before me, we think we're safe because there's no plane of Dura. There's no Nebuchadnezzar. There's no 60-cubit image of Nebuchadnezzar in gold. There's no trumpet call and there's no command to bow. We're safe, or so we think. But on Black Friday two-thirds of America was in the, were in the stores shopping and I'm guessing that many of them were worshiping their God. Increasingly, I hear in our society materialistic callings and urges. You are defined by what you have, by where you go, by the bling you carry increasingly in our society I hear a philosophy that's materialistic and that's not just to say I want more that's to say that material things as a reality are all that there are it's all that is what you see is what is we've become a society of material reductionists believers in the power of the universe as we understand it not as God understands it. Increasingly, we're in a society that is ready to deny the power of one whose appearance is like the gods and to bank on the certainties of the fires. And I wonder, will there be a remnant in our generation who will arise to praise God and in doing so cause the nebuchadnezzars of the world to make their own acknowledgments that's the power of praise that's the power of this season that's the power of the Christ who has come who reminds us of a whole different reality not the generosity that we can force for ourselves out of a sale but the generosity of God whose gifts keep coming and keep coming. The generosity of a God who declares his affinity with us in the person of Christ for all eternity. Who, as the Message Bible puts it in John 1, has moved into the neighborhood. I love it. So in the season of Advent, it's easy for us To get distracted, to serve the gods of those difficult and almost invisible things that we don't recognize to be idols. In this season, it's easy to lose focus in the busyness of it all. In this world, it's easy to go through the empty gesture. In this world it's safer simply not to commit. But I want to invite you, all of you, to be among the multitude that sings its praise to God at the end of the story. And to enter into a spirit of celebration as we get into Advent now and celebrate the beginning of this wonderful story. For Christ the Lord is here among us.